You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this morning, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we're looking together at chapter 23. Verses 23 through 35, and you'll find this on page 933 of the Pew Bible. That's Acts chapter 23 and verses 23 through 35. Page 933. Hear the word of God. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man— I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Well, as we have seen, by way of short recap, a group of zealous Jews formed a plot to assassinate the Apostle Paul. And in the providence of God, the conspiracy was discovered and exposed and thwarted, which is what we just read. And Jesus, therefore, was true to his promise that Paul would bear witness in Rome. How he would get there was unexpected. He would travel as a prisoner of the state. But get there he would. And the pledge of Christ would be fulfilled. And Paul remained steadfast in his dependence on Jesus, despite all of his adverse circumstances. The promise of Christ had come to Paul in the midst of his tribulations, as you remember. And as we can imagine, things may have looked bleak from a human perspective, somewhat disconcerting, a little bit confusing. But according to infinite wisdom, the Lord would work all of this out for good. 
And the Apostle Paul seems to have been steady throughout the entire ordeal. His courage in the face of difficulty and danger, I think, has at least three pillars that we can discern. Three things that buttressed his courage in the midst of these difficult circumstances. And there should be no question that the first pillar supporting Paul's courage was the presence of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, before, as we read previously, it says, The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. And there is far more significance to that than at first glance you might think. When the Lord Jesus encouraged Paul, he did not simply speak a word. Take courage with nothing else, as if to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It was not merely a divine command issued from the heavenly throne. Of course, that would have been enough. It should have been enough. If God says something, we can receive and embrace it as good as done. Embracing any truth, as a matter of fact, on the authority of God is an act of worship. One of the great proofs of sanctification is a submission to Scripture. You receive it as the Word of God. But I think here we see that Jesus came to Paul in person and spoke personally. That is to say, it's not just that Christ appeared and said, take courage. It says the Lord stood by him. And does this not suggest the nuance of friendship? You know, oftentimes we sing that hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. And I think it's true. We don't sing it flippantly or casually, but we understand that he's the best friend we've ever had. And the importance of this, I think, was not lost upon the apostle who later said this to Timothy. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And even though he had been for one reason or another abandoned by his friends, Paul was not alone. He was always under the watchful eye and the sovereign care of the Lord. The presence of Christ in that nighttime epiphany greatly strengthened him, and he needed it. And it must have been what Paul had in mind when he made this statement to the Philippians. You know it well. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When his strength was spent and his spirits were low and his confidence was shaken, the Lord stood by him. And it is the presence of Christ with the believer that produces courage. And I wonder if there's someone here this morning who can empathize with Paul. Perhaps you're disappointed or confused. Maybe you're grieved or you're weary of the daily grind. Whatever it is, you realize that you don't seem to have the strength or the courage to step up to the challenge. If only you had someone in your corner, at your side, leading the way, it would be fine. Well, just as the Lord stood by Paul, so he is ready to stand by you. He promised in Matthew 28, after all, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
And that promise is not only for the church collectively, but I believe that promise is for each believer individually. I am with you always to the end of the age. And your ability to do all things is through Christ who strengthens you. So we take Jesus at his word and patiently rely upon him in every situation. That's pillar number one. But then there's the second pillar, I believe, that supported Paul's courage. And that is the purpose of God. Hearing that he would bear witness in Rome gave his sufferings a whole new look. The Lord had work for him to do in the capital of the empire, and suffering was the means to prepare him for that work. And while it was difficult, Paul's hardships had a point. They were not random or futile. He knew the Lord was in control, and he had reasons for these circumstances. So while conditions might have been a bit confusing for the apostle, there was no need for him to be anxious. How many times does he say, be not anxious? All the events going on in his life were part and parcel of God's purpose for his ministry. God exposed the plot. God thwarted the Jews. God provided the escort to Caesarea, and he would have Paul stand before the governor. In fact, when the Lord Jesus originally commissioned Paul, this is what he said, and Elder Gilliland read it earlier. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I'll appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Why? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. What an incredible thing that is. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a commission. What a privilege to be employed in the salvation of souls. And thus God has this overarching plan and Paul's hardships were an important part of it. He knew that. That instills courage. And the cause was just. It was divine. It had been performed from the councils of eternity. And that alone should give courage, but God gives us more, of course. Knowing that what we do or what we suffer is for a righteous purpose. Paul wasn't sure about the details, but he knew the goal was God's glory. In bringing men and women to Christ, he'd be able to magnify the Lord, however he would do it. And for the rest of his life, Paul remembered the original commission on the road to Damascus. And thus, when Jesus stood by him in this hour of need, that commission was reaffirmed. I, I've heard this before. What a boost it must have been to the apostle. How encouraging at just the right time. Take courage, Paul, for as you've testified in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. So the Lord wasn't done with Paul. He certainly had not forgotten him. There was a higher purpose. 
His trials were not pointless. They weren't insignificant. And again, there may be someone here this morning who feels as if the Lord has somehow forgotten him or her. You've been led to think that you're not that important to the kingdom, that you're on the outskirts. And perhaps you're almost persuaded that your gifts aren't really needed. And in this way, the devil has convinced you of a lie. He's deceived you. Not to damnation, but in this particular instance. God says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, think with me for a minute. If God concerns himself with sparrows, surely he concerns himself with you. If he numbers the hairs of your head, then he also, and more so, will number your heads and take care of your lives and oversee your trials and preserve your souls. Isn't that true? The lesser to the greater, the greater to the lesser. You are of tremendous import to him, whoever you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what position you occupy. You're a Christian. And your service is needed. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So in Paul's experience, he had the presence of Christ and the purpose of God giving him courage. But there's a third pillar. It's the providence of the Lord. And this goes hand in hand with the previous pillar of the purpose of God. Here we understand by providence that God has absolute control over all things. That's the shorthand version of it. And in what Jesus said and what Paul experienced, this is clearly implied. Look what he said. He told Paul, you must testify in Rome. It was a divine necessity, as we said last week. He did not say you could testify, you should testify, you might testify. He said, you must. And the conclusion there is obvious, isn't it? As part of God's plan, Paul would testify. He had to be in Rome. He would be in Rome. He must be in Rome. And that being the case, God's overruling providence would make it happen. There's no doubt about that. The plan was fixed and the word had been declared. Paul's testimony in Rome, even though humanly speaking it didn't seem that way, was an absolute, undeniable, inevitable certainty. Just like when God says, he began a good work in you, he'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Nothing can stop it from happening. God's providence will ensure it. All the events of Paul's life and your life lead to that outcome. I don't know about you, but I find tremendous comfort in his providence. There's so many things that I don't understand and that I cannot possibly figure out. 
But no matter how confusing they are, I know that wisdom is behind them. I hope you believe that with me. God ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He superintends every detail of every life. I don't care how many billions there are. He's infinite. He can do it. So when our faith wavers because of tragedy, Ukraine, shootings, what have you, when our faith wavers because of tragedy or evil, providence strengthens us. All things unfold precisely as God intended them. And yes, it's confusing, but there is an eternal purpose to glorify his name and to save his people. And he has the power and the authority to bring that purpose to fruition. That's faith. So there are three pillars of courage, the presence of Christ, the purpose of God, and the providence of the Lord. He's with us. He directs us, and he works all things together for good. And insofar as you and I know and believe these things, God will give us courage. We all need to be strengthened, don't we? Each one of us goes through trials. We see each other sometimes struggling with trials in our lives. Sometimes they're severe. They greatly test our moral courage. Sometimes I think, if we're honest, we're tempted to lose heart, maybe give up hope, wallow in despair. And it's then that we need to be reminded of those three magnificent truths. Christ is with us. God has a purpose. And the Lord's providence will bring all of it to pass. Now, I have to be honest with you and be faithful as a minister of the gospel that those who are outside of Christ and alienated from God have no part in these three things. That's not to say that God's providence doesn't preserve and govern them. It does. His providence reaches to every creature, whether believer or not. But in the unbeliever's life, providence does not work all things together for good. It all leads to the destruction of their souls, ultimately. You know that. So yes, as one has said, this is their best life now. This is as good as it gets. Their position right now is precarious, and I'm not surprised if the unbeliever, sensing the final day approaching, trembles in fear. The trials and tribulations that the unbeliever must endure, he endures in his own strength. Hebrews 10, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. They can draw no courage from Christ's presence or God's purpose or the providence of the Lord. As a matter of fact, God is against them. As long as they remain impenitent, God opposes them. Proverbs 16, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God didn't make them wicked. He didn't compel them to be wicked. He made man upright, but we've sought out many schemes. Man chose to be wicked. 
In Adam, we went for that forbidden fruit. Every sinner outside of Christ will be punished, and we're told with unspeakable torments. And God's justice sets forth his glory no less than do the riches of his grace, so that all creatures, great and small, saved or unsaved, will somehow glorify the Lord. They'll glorify his grace or they'll magnify his justice, whether by salvation or damnation, they'll all magnify his great name. And I think this helps to explain that vivid description of the great prostitute's destruction in Revelation 19. Have you ever wondered about that? This is what it says. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In other words, the unceasing rise of her smoke serves to magnify the glory of God's justice. And therefore, Christ will be glorified one way or another. Everything will magnify his name and exalt him. We're told at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So first of all, and this is the first observation I'd like us to make, is this. Let the Christian rejoice in and draw courage from the abiding presence of God. Our Lord is imminent. Do you know what that word means? Imminent, close, intimate, right there. He is transcendent, but he's imminent as well. As transcendent, he's above and he's beyond the limits of everything he's made. He's infinite. But as imminent, he's at work in the universe and he moves among his creatures. He's here. You can't see him, but he's at work. He's not some abstract, aloof, impersonal deity who's indifferent to your concerns and mine. The Son of God was willing to go so far as to become one of us that he might save us. <laughs> That's imminent. Christ is with us. Paul said in him, we live and move and have our being. And the very name by which he's called indicates as much. Emmanuel. Every Christmas, we read that story. Emmanuel, God with us. He is a faithful shepherd who guides us along the path that leads to life. And as our head and husband, he loves us and cherishes us. And as a benevolent king, he cares for each and every one of his subjects. And thus, to use the language of verse 11, Jesus Christ is willing to stand by us. Do you remember that story about Stephen when he was being stoned to death? It says, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And by that, I think the Lord was signifying his concern and his support for his servant, Stephen. And Christ is equally concerned about each one of you and ready to support you. And he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's promised, even to the end of the age, he'll stand by you. 
And I don't think I have to remind you, but few things are more difficult and painful than solitary suffering. Am I right? Solitary suffering. Affliction is hard enough, but when it's born in isolation, it's almost unbearable. Prisoners in solitary confinement oftentimes go insane. And part of the unspeakable torments of hell will be the isolation of the damned. They have no fellowship, no companionship, no society whatsoever. To all eternity, they'll endure an awful and excruciating sense of loneliness. Oh, God will be with them, but not as a benefactor, as a consuming fire. And those in hell will be cast out from that comfortable presence of God, and it will be utter darkness, no light. It'll be the terrible isolation of the damned. By contrast, and I have to say this, part of the inexpressible joys of heaven will be that perfect and full communion with Christ and one another. Even now we enjoy the sweet fellowship with Christ and his people. So even in the worst of our afflictions, we can be encouraged by the presence of Jesus. And as a faithful shepherd, he's able and willing to lead us beside still waters, isn't he? As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and we're all going to die. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with us. So if you're feeling alone today, remember God's covenant promise, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. He bound himself by sacred oath to be your God now and forever. Secondly, let's draw courage from the divine purpose for each one. As with Paul, so with us, God has a plan for every one of us, and his plan is just, and it's holy. And what he calls us to do and believe is righteous. You know, apart from this, we could agree with the preacher that all is vanity. This is what has led some to embrace the idea that everything is meaningless, that's the worldview of a nihilist. Have you ever heard that term, nihilist? All of life is simply meaningless. Because apart from God, and they don't have God on their side, there is no purpose. Life is just this endless cycle. Birth, life, death. A generation comes, a generation goes, on and on. And if that's true, all would be vanity. Empty, futile, without purpose. But we know from Scripture that God has an overarching plan. And in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul refers to God's eternal purpose, which runs through the ages. I think you can agree with me that only a fool thinks an all-wise God has no plan or no purpose or no intention. <laughs> he can't be all-wise if that's true. He doesn't do things haphazardly, by the seat of his pants, so to speak. No, from all eternity, this God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass in time. And this eternal purpose has immediate reference to each one of you and me. 
Psalm 57, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Our whole experience as believers has been planned from eternity. Everything that befalls us unfolds according to God's sovereign good pleasure. Whatever he does, it's for our eternal benefit. That's why Paul says, I'm sure of this. I'm convinced of it. I'll go to the stake for it. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we have a purpose. Each one of our lives is meaningful. The humblest saint, the weakest believer, the, every single one is vitally important. No one is insignificant. No one is irrelevant. Did, son, did God's son spill his blood for an eternal soul? that is is at all inconsequential? Why would he do that? He didn't. You are engraved on the palms of his hands. He calls you by name. His spirit lives in your heart, and your life is significant. And this was one of the most important things to me when I was converted. At the age of 23, later than most, but thank God it was there. Finally, I had purpose, a cause bigger than myself. No longer would I wander through life seemingly to be aimless. If you've ever questioned your purpose in life, you know how difficult that is. And when I was converted, I didn't know much, but I knew this for sure, that Christ is in heaven that the Spirit is in my heart, and that one day I'll be there. That's purpose. I had an end goal to glorify and to fully enjoy God forever. I can see the hand of God at work now. I can sense His overarching plan, and that gave me courage, especially in those times when I was confused. And if you're a Christian, then everything in your life has significance. Everything. The way you love your spouse the way you train your children, the way you serve the church or work at your job or study at your school. It all has significance. And it is especially when you suffer, you know that God has a purpose for it. Nothing is more spiritually discouraging and more morally deflating than suffering without purpose because if it's pointless, let's just end it, right? All the senseless pain and the futile hardship and the vain misery, just curse God and die. But you see, Job didn't do that. He realized that God is in heaven and Job is on earth. His suffering was confusing and painful and agonizing, but he knew that God had a purpose, and so he pressed on. So let's give thanks for God's overruling providence in all of our experiences because he preserves and governs all of his creatures. And that's a bold and comprehensive statement, I know. If the Bible didn't say it, I would not believe it. He preserves and governs all of his creatures, not just the billions of humans, every creature. Every sparrow that touches down and takes off. Numbering the hairs of your head, come on. 
Does he actually have time to do that? Determines the days of your lives, ordains the steps you take. As I said, if the Bible didn't teach it, I would not believe it. But Scripture says it, and I believe it. And so did the Apostle Paul, that he preserves everything. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, because if for one moment he withdrew his hand, this entire cosmos would collapse. The Son of God upholds and sustains all things without exception. Sun, moon, stars, black holes, whatever those things are. And one implication is the fact that human history is linear. There's a timeline. Everything is leading inevitably to the day. Historical events, they're meaningful and unrepeatable, and they lead to the consummation. History is not just cyclical. It's not a cosmic treadmill going around and around. God's providence means that he's in control of history, and it's leading to the great consummation. That final day will dawn and Jesus will return and bodies will be resurrected, every single one of them. And then will take place the great and awesome judgment of angels and men when God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that means that your life and mine has rich meaning. And I hope you're ready. And I hope you're a Christian. And I hope you accept that offer of salvation. Because if you do, you need not be anxious. You can draw courage from the presence of Christ and the purpose of God and the providence of our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we thank you for the presence of Christ with his people for your infallible, wise, and holy purpose in our lives, for your providence that overrules all things for our good. This is what gives us courage, and we praise you for it. And we ask for the help of the Spirit as we sing your praise. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.